This week's episode is brought to you by Academy Games and their new game, Agents of Mayhem, Pride of Babylon. A new tactical board game for two to four players is now on Kickstarter. Based on the video game set in the St. Rose universe, Agents of Mayhem, Pride of Babylon pits mayhem against Legion in a head-to-head 3D game with destructible play area. Already funded and currently unlocking stretch goals, Agents of Mayhem is on Kickstarter now through Tuesday, February 27th. Welcome to Board Gamers and is episode 156, Best Games for Female Characterization. We'd like to thank our brand new Patreon backer, Philp, for coming in at the producer level. Philp, you rock, man. You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. And this is Anthony. Anthony, we got a great episode. We are going back to an episode we talked about on episode 85, talking about the best games that have probably one of the most important things that board gaming can do now more than ever, which is bring us positive female roles and characterization in gaming. Yeah, no kidding. It's it's gotten a little better from some games. Let's talk about some of those today, but it's still a significant issue. <laughs> and as a father with a young daughter, I would like to see it continue to get better because, uh, you know, everybody wants to be represented in these games, not and in a way that represents who they are and how they feel about themselves, not this crazy cartoonish version of the female form that we all too typically see yeah there's a, a challenge for all types of i would guess underrepresented people in gaming whether it's people at the table or characters in gaming so we wanted to return to this episode because it has so much importance for all of us not just for females joining us at the table but especially for men to be able to play these really important roles. But we'll get into that in a little bit. What's going on, man? How you feeling? Oh, no big deal, man. It's just a just a little flu. Just a little flu. Is there such a thing? Well, I'm, I'm still uh I'm alive. I'm not I'm at home. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm here. So yeah, it's all right. I'm doing good. Yeah, no, it's been a long week of uh kind of coming out the other end of it. This is like day 5. So I'm I'm here and I'm functional and I was working today. And so you know I'm in a decent place, but I don't sound great. But just imagine what I sounded like three days ago, right? Well, we're glad to have you on the episode. And I know that everybody wants to hear from you each and every week, no matter how close to death you might possibly be. But I guess it's just a flesh wound, right? Just a flesh wound. If we'd been recording on Monday, I would have been like, nah. (laughs) Or you could have me on for 30 seconds to be like, go away. Alrighty, question of the week time, because it is Kickstarter season and I have like four or five games that are still not in the mail or near me or anywhere that I can tell. Come on, Simon, where's my stuff? So I asked everybody what game thoroughly blew away your expectations, kind of expecting people to mention Kickstarter stuff or uh, similar types of games. Ironically, not a lot of Kickstarter games referenced here, which I found kind of odd. I figured it would be a lot of those 
games that people didn't expect to be any good. Oh, there's a few. So Umit says, through the ages, he knew it was one of the best Civ games, but underestimated the tension of acquiring cards and satisfaction of seeing your Civ developing throughout the game. It is such a cool game. Tim mentioned Charterstone. That's a new one, so it's fresh on mind. Phil mentioned Viticulture. Great theme, great components, great gameplay. Guillermo mentioned Imperial Settlers for solo play. I never in my entire gaming life thought beating my own score could be so interesting and diverse. I actually agree on that, because I'm not a huge fan of beat your own score, but I really, really like Imperial Settlers for solo play. It's one of my top picks for that. Uh, Matt mentions Pandemic the Cure. Mike and Steve both mentioned Gloomhaven. Might be one of mine as well. Um, I mean, I backed it, but I didn't expect much out of it. Certainly not what it became. Scott mentions Spirit Island. So does Daniel. A couple more mentions of Gloomhaven here. And then I actually got a whole bunch of people who mentioned Clank as well. Uh, Xavier, Eric, John. So I think that's another one that kind of snuck up on people. Um, our buddy Dave threw in Yinch again because I think he's messing with me. <laughs> That's what he does. And then uh, Chuck mentioned Arkham Horror, which is another that's another one to mention uh, any of those Arkham games. I think I'd throw mentions of Madness in there as well. I didn't expect to really enjoy that as much as I did. Um, and I really quite did. So, yeah, lots of good games in there. I think uh, it's it's hard these days to beat the hype. And yet some games still manage to do it, which is always impressive. Okay, so if you would like to join the conversation, don't forget, we got Facebook, we got Twitter, we got BoardGamersAnonymous.com. We got a great YouTube channel. You can also jump in and rate us on iTunes and Stitcher. And of course, our Patreon account is there, so you can jump in, join us on Slack, get our bonus episodes straight to you based upon what you're looking to listen to for that particular month. And as always, please let other people know about Board Gamers Anonymous. Get them to the table and join the conversation. We would love to get more people into board gaming. All right. So with all of that said, let's get on to our acquisitions disorder. So, Anthony, what do you have up for us this week? All righty. So this is a game that I missed way back when because I didn't know who Vital Lacerda was. I'm ashamed of myself now. It's CO2. So CO2 is being re-released. Uh, it's called CO2 Second Chance, and it is on Kickstarter right now for all the English uh, gaming backers. Um, it's on a whole bunch of other sites, I think, in Europe. But for, for us in the U.S., it's on the uh, Kickstarter. And this is the second edition of the game. So the basic idea of the game is you are the CEO of an energy company, and you are trying to build newer, greener power plants. So you want to... Stop increasing pollution while also ensuring you're providing enough energy as demand for that goes up. And of course, you own a company, so you got to make some money, right? So there's a lot of different things you'll be doing, dealing with carbon emission permits and the UN and constructing fossil fuel power plants and infrastructure and all these different things that go into this. It's a Vital Lacerda game, so you know it's deeply thematic for a Euro has all these different things baked into it. But at the same time, because it's a Vital Lacerda game, it is beautifully laid out because this is, you know, the attention his games get now. And it has, this new version just looks fantastic. You know, it's got Ian O'Toole is on the design team. Uh, so you can definitely see some of his influences there. A lot of the same iconography we've come to expect in Vital Lacerda games. The new edition adds a whole bunch of stuff so the most important thing for me, at least off the bat, is it has a cooperative game mode, which is now the main game. So the, the 
core game is the cooperative version of the game now, which is interesting. His games are not generally cooperative, but it still comes with a competitive game too. So if you want to play the old school version, it's there, um, which also means you can play it solo. So thumbs up from me. Love myself some Vital Serta solo gaming. There are new UN goal cards, different point values there, different ways to get points, wild knowledge points, new goal card, UN inspectors variant that they've added. The events work slightly different now. Just a lot of stuff different in the co-op in general, and then some of the additional pieces and changes that are gonna happen for both versions of the game. So it's kind of similar, like if you look back at Vinos, and the second edition they did of that, where they added the two different vintages. Neither of those is co-op necessarily, but the second vintage, the newer version of that game, is fairly different from the original. You know, it's it's more than just a, a reprint. It's like a revamping of the game. Um, this looks very similar to that, which is great because you're getting more. And if you already own the game, it's kind of worth checking out. So like I said, it's on Kickstarter now. Yeah, I'll probably back this because I have his other three big, beautiful uh, releases from the last few years and love all three of them. So this is this will be a good one to add because uh, this one did come out a long time ago, but with the revamp and the revisit that Lacerda is giving it, making sure it's up to snuff for 2018, um, it should be pretty solid. And I really like the theme and the idea behind it. Yeah, this is my acquisition to Sora this week as well. I was looking forward to this coming out and I know that this was a bit of a surprise for some people, but really what's, I think as you said, really impressive is the revamp look. I mean, this is a radical redesign, very colorful, really high quality components to this game. And having the game not just be kind of quasi or semi co-op, but just a full on co-op game. But you can also play the original version as well with this. So either way, this is going to be, I guess, obviously a fantastic game because you get to know how great it is because all the information's out there already, and this is an upgraded version of this. So definitely pick this one up. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm definitely all in on this one. Okay, so that's everything for our acquisition disorders. Now for our at the table. So, Anthony, what did you get to the table recently? I got a chance to play Montana. This is a game from Rudiger Dorn, um, art by Clemens Franz. All the Euro fame, but probably you know him best from Agricola. It's hard to categorize weight-wise. It's not a lightweight filler, but it's not quite a medium-weight Euro. It's kind of in between. So it's in that like 45-minute Euro category, of which there are very few games. So I was very interested in it because of that. So this is not yet released in the U.S. It was released at Essen in Europe by White Goblin. And I think they just kickstarted it, Big Kid Games did, a couple months ago. So it'll be releasing here sometime in 2018. But going to give you a quick rundown of the game and how it works. Basically what you got is you're going to have your own player board. And on it, you're going to have all the different resources that you'll be building up. So that includes the red stones, the black stones. I don't remember exactly what they are. Different kinds of ore, I believe. The, the food and the pumpkins, the wheat and the pumpkins. Each of these are used for different things. But really, the goal of the game is to get your 10 settlement tiles. Well, not, not always 10, but some number of settlement tiles between, I think, 9 or 8 and 12. Depends on how many players there are. But you want to get all of them down onto the board. And the board is modular, the size of which depends on how many players there are. How this works is each space on the board has a certain picture on it in terms of which pieces need to be. So it might have two stones, a wheat, and a pumpkin, which means you need to trade in those things to place your settlement. On your turn, you, on your turn, you can take one of three actions. You can recruit 
which means you get to spin a spinner. Yes, there is a spinner in this game, and it'll land on one of several different places that has two workers printed on it. You take those two workers, and then you can pay a food to move it and take some additional workers. So you get two to four workers when you do that. You can work, which is sending your workers to a central board uh, to take different actions, or you can build, which is when you build the settlements. So the work phase, there's a, a central workspace, and it's not, I wouldn't call it worker placement because it's not that robust of a worker space. There's only a few things you're going to do. So you're going to either go trade money for the ore, trade money for the stone, trade money for the food, trade money for the pumpkins, or turn in workers for different amounts of money, or go to the auction space. So most of these are pretty straightforward. You place a matching colored worker on the space, you spend the money you're supposed to spend, and you get the thing that you are purchasing, or you just get the money. The auction space is a little different because you have these contractors. You'll put it out there on the space you want to go. There's four different options. They give you different bonuses, but most of them let you upgrade your stone or your ore into larger versions of those, which are sometimes needed for the settlement placement. And you are basically bidding. So each column has a number of pumpkins you have to pay. You put your guy there. That's how many pumpkins you're bidding. Um, and then people will go around in clockwise order and they place their guys down. And if somebody outbids you, you then move your guy to another place on that mat, you know, adjusting the number of pumpkins that you owe. So there are four different rows here and a maximum of four players. So you could have turns where nobody outbids anybody and everybody pays the minimum. But there's only one spot for one pumpkin, only a couple spots for two, and only and then the top one, it starts at three. So it all depends on how many pumpkins everybody wants to spend. That's a kind of an interesting mechanic, but it doesn't happen too much in my experience, maybe two or three times in the game. So, But it's cool when it does. The real race of the game is the settlement placement phase. So this is an action you can take. And when you take it, you can actually do this three times. So it's worth waiting to do it until you've built up a nice little supply of stuff. But people can cut you off. And this is an interesting part of the game because you have to kind of race and claim territory. But if you take a settlement action and can't build three, it's inefficient because you're trying to get all your settlements out there. But if you manage to get a row or column of four settlements, you get to put an extra one down for free. And if you happen to land on a space that has a little settlement icon in the top corner, you put another one down for free. So if you play your cards right, you can get out like five in a single turn, but you need to have the resources. People need to not block you and you need to be savvy about how you do it. So you're usually balancing like you need to have a certain number of resources in place to make sure you're actually able to go where you want to go, but also maybe some backup resources in case somebody blocks you. Like, don't have a set strategy. The board is tight, and people will block you and cut you off to get things. There's also cows that are on the board. When you take these, they can be turned in for various bonuses. You can trade them in for one good or three money or an extra worker. There's canteens on the water. If you're the first person to get to the water and take the canteen, that's an extra turn when you spend it. Yeah, you can only do that once. So you go around and around and around. You do this. It goes really, really quick. The game takes 40 minutes has yet to break an hour. There's a whole bunch of components, so it seems like it'll be a big heavy game, but it's really, really not. And it, it's fairly simple. So, I mean, it's not the most brilliant Euro I've ever played, um, but I do like it quite a bit because it is short, because it is accessible, because it kind of fits that 45 minute filler length 
that so few games actually fit. So yeah, I definitely recommend it. I don't know that I would go out and buy it, uh, depending on the price point. I managed to pick this one up um, on Board Game Geek, I think, because I was buying something from somebody else, and they had this copy, and it was getting reduced shipping or some ridiculous thing. And it ended up being relatively inexpensive, but that's not necessarily the case if you try to order it now. And I don't know what the uh, English language edition, when it finally comes out, for the U.S. is going to cost. But it is a good game. So if you can get a good deal on it uh, and realize that you're not getting a full-scale Euro here that's going to anchor a game night, and this is more of a uh, in-between game, then yeah, it's worth picking up. So just make sure you have a space in your collection for it before you do. And don't Make sure you don't have a problem against spinners because <laughs> it has a spinner. And someone said I, you could replace a, the spinner with a die, but then you'd be like referencing a chart, and I'm not doing that. So I, I don't mind a spinner. A um, couple people I've played with had problems with it, but such is life. There you go. That's Montana. Yeah, it's definitely worth this play. Yeah, I think the spinner was definitely a turnoff for a lot of people and just had a lot of people scratching their head that, you would see a Euro game with a spinner. But it's it's good to see that there is a, I guess, light to medium weight Euro that you can knock out in 45 minutes. Yeah, yeah. No, they could have done this with two custom dice because there are four different types of workers. You just put three different faces of each worker on two dice. Done, right? But the spinner's kind of cool. I've got kids. I play with spinners all the time. So... It's fun to, to flick it when playing with a six-year-old and see how many times you can get it to go around to annoy him. Um, so he's like, it's my turn. I'm like, it's still spinning. <laughs> you gotta wait. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't mind it at all. And it, it makes the game work, I think. All right, so the game that's been hitting my table each and every day this week has been the brand new hotness from Simon, Rising Sun. This is a game from Eric Lang, who also designed Blood Rage. And in fact, Rising Sun is a blood successor to Blood Rage. Both games are miniatures on a map in which you utilize these monstrous miniatures in order to take down your enemies, score the most victory points possible, and control the lands. Now, in Rising Sun, you are looking to control feudal Japan in this mythological era where you are praying to the gods using your Shinto warriors you're using your bushi, your footmen, to control the areas. And the daimyo is leading your forces into battles over three rounds in which you are allying with your enemy in order to benefit from their action selection each and every round. Now, once a tea ceremony is concluded at the beginning of each of the three rounds, that moves on to the political mandate section, where you're going to be able to pick one of four possible actions, some may be duplicate, out of a possible five political mandates that are available in the game. Now, taking these political mandates are interesting because just like they are in Puerto Rico, San Juan, and Race for the Galaxy, they just don't affect you choosing an action or your ally choosing an action, but everyone gets to use some element of that action. Now, this is where your allying with somebody else really comes into play because both you and your ally will take the better part of that possible political mandate action where everyone else will get something, possibly, unless it's a betray action, but I'll get to that in a second. So when you look at the game, you're going to have this big, beautiful board, outstanding artwork, really smart graphic design, makes it very simple to play, very easy and understandable for new players at the table. In addition to the board that makes the game really easy to follow, you're also going to have your player screen that's going to protect your actions during the war phase 
but throughout the game, it's going to give everyone information as far as what your special player ability is, how much money you start with, your set collection that's going to score you the most points at the end of the game, what types of troops are available for you, and what special abilities they may have, your starting position on the honor track, which is extremely important in breaking ties, and there will be a lot of ties in this game. Now, once you get those four possible selections for political mandates, you will choose one and place it on the top of the board. Now, this is really where the graphic design really does shine because it's easy and explainable to everybody what's now going to take place. Now, everyone in turn order will be able to take their action based upon if they're an ally of you, they get the strong action. If they're not an ally of you, they get the weaker action. So let's talk about the actions. The first action that's pretty interesting is recruit. So based upon how many strongholds you have in this game, and at the start of the game you start one, you will be able to recruit one additional miniature on the board. Now, you have a number of different possibilities here throughout the game, including those monsters that you will eventually be able to purchase. Now, you and your ally will be able to bring out an additional miniature onto the board, which is really helpful in the start of the game. Second, there's the martial action. The martial action will allow you to move all your figures one space that's adjacent to where their starting space happens to be. Now, the game really does a nice job showing adjacency, which includes these multicolor borders and these different, I would say, shipping areas, which you can kind of cross the board with just one simple movement. Now, in addition to that, you and your ally will be able to build a stronghold, which I already said gives you an opportunity to build additional miniatures throughout the game. Next is the train action. Now, this is a really fun part of the game because if you choose this action, you get to go first. And you'll be able to choose from that particular season's cards. Now, those cards could be part of these monstrous miniatures or just bonus victory points throughout the game or maybe just something to help you kind of deal with the ongoing conditions. Next is the harvest action. Now, the harvest action is a little tricky because what you're going to do is you're going to look at the board and see where you have the most strength. And now, when I talk about strength, as I'm talking about figures on that particular province. Each figure is typically worth one, unless the figure says otherwise, or unless the cards that they're using alters that final conclusion. Now, once you tally up the strength in a region, whoever has the most gets the benefit of that region, which typically is money, victory points, or Ronin throughout the game. Finally, there's the betray action. Now, this is really interesting because when you use the betray action, you betray your ally, your alliance is broken, you will no longer gain the benefit when they take a particular action, and we'll talk about the other stuff when we get to the war phase. But what the betray action lets you do is choose two other players, including your former ally, and take one of their figures each and swap it with one of the figures of your own. And now it has to be the same type of figure, but this really does change the gameplay up and really, once again, it incorporates a lot of that diplomacy element about when are you going to backstab in order to get, you know, your way. Now, throughout the game, there's going to be three different kami phases where you're going to be able to pray to the gods and based upon majority control of those gods, you're going to gain a special ability throughout the game. Now, it might give you more money, it might give you more troops, might give you more movement, or move you up to the top of the honor track. There's actually seven different gods in this game, and four are going to be available each game. So once all of that runs down, eventually you're going to get to the war phase, and you're going to take your political mandate tile, flip it over, hide it behind your screen, because now the war actions are going to take place. Now, this isn't a simple deterministic war type of game where whoever has the most force wins, because 
this war phase is going to take place over four different phases. Now, what you're going to do with your money, and this is really where the money plays the biggest part of the game, is you are going to wager on one of these four different sections, or all four of these sections if you'd like, and based upon whoever wins the bidding here secretly, you are going to be able to take that particular action. So you have five guys, I have five guys. Okay, it's going to be a little tight. Let's see what happens. Well, go to the first phase is the seppuku. You can actually sacrifice your characters for victory points and honor. So right away, that changes what might be the layout of that particular province. In addition to that, the next phase is take a hostage. It will allow you to take any one figure from any player in that particular region, including your ally. So that changes the numbers of power in that area. Next is the higher Ronin. Now, you'll be able to collect Ronin throughout the game. And basically, these are hired warriors that will stay with you throughout the war phase and will not deplete or get killed in any particular way. But once again, you have to win that bidding area in order to use your Ronin in the game. Now, finally, the battle has an outcome. All the debts that are in that province, and then you move to the Imperial Poets. Now, whoever wins that section is going to score a victory point for every figure that was killed in that area. Now, there's a lot of difference here. If you win the province at the very end, you will get that province's token. Now, these little token tiles are very important because at the end of the game, for the set that you have that has the most different types of provinces, and as I said, there are eight in this game, you are going to score victory points. So if you get seven or eight, you're going to get 30 victory points in this game, or 20 or 10 if you got lesser province tokens. So that's a big bonus in the game, but that alone is not going to win you the game. You want to score victory points throughout the game, including during those different war phases. And that's pretty much it. The game takes place over three rounds, and once you come down to the last round and the last battle, you will score up all your victory points. And whoever has the most victory points wins the game. Now, I was expecting some Blood Rage elements in this game, and I did find a lot of them here. You are definitely trying to, I would say, conduct missions or harvest particular areas like you do in Blood Rage in order to get victory points. And you do use monstrous miniatures and battle cards to kind of strengthen up your troops, make them go from a one value to a two value. So there are a lot of elements here from Blood Rage, and yet it's a very different game. So first off, the negotiations that happens at the tea ceremony each round. Now, none of that's binding, but it allows you to kind of, you know, invoke an interesting element as far as the war is going. You might want to ally with different people at different time or keep the same ally throughout the game, but you still want to win the game. There's no joint victory in this game. You want to come out on top. Now, for me as a Eurogamer, mostly, although I am a big Amerithrash fan, something that really stuck out to me is the action selection here and the strong and weak actions. Because that really plays a big part in the game. Now, some of that is really fun and interesting, and some of that is a little bit random. So if you don't happen to get the action you want to choose during that round, you're kind of stuck. But once again... Hopefully you've chosen the right ally and you've had some discussions, so hopefully they'll get a shot to take it, so hopefully you'll get a shot to take that final action. I will save the comparisons to Blood Rage later, but what I will say is that this is probably a, a little bit on the lighter side in comparison to Blood Rage. The diplomacy element isn't that big, and if it's something that you're not a fan of, you don't have to worry about it here. 
if you are a fan of the diplomacy element, then I guess you could invoke it a lot more here, kind of trade things, promise things throughout the game, and then maybe either pay it off or not pay it off throughout the game. And that might play into a little more of the RPG gamer element into this. But you don't necessarily need to do that. In fact, you don't need an ally throughout the game at all. You can kind of lone wolf it and still take your own actions. You're just not benefiting big times from someone else's actions. I really enjoyed this game. It was at an expensive price tag, but everything in this game is of top quality. So I'm going to rate Rising Sun a buy. It's something that everyone should play and see if they like. And as I said, since it's a little bit on the lighter side, it's going to bring more people to the table than Blood Rage, which tends to be a little bit on the heavy side. I'm really also very glad to hear that the uh, negotiation part is part of the game, but not core to the game, because that was the thing I was always nervous about. Like, I love Eric Lang's games, I love Blood Rage, and this looks beautiful, and I'm going to back it, but if it's really like diplomacy, I'm not going to like it. <laughs> so, good to hear. So for this feature review, we're going to take a look at the top 10 board games with positive female characterization and representation. Way back on episode 85, we took a look at the top 10 best board games out there that you could find strong female characters doing roles that weren't always traditional in board gaming and, in some cases, were less than in society. Now, it may be easy to dismiss not having positive female characters in board gaming to be a female problem, but in fact, it's a problem for everyone, especially for males. Having positive female characters in board gaming opens up so many things for so many different types of board gamers. First off, females are able to find a point of view character into what sometimes is a strange universe. Maybe it's alien, maybe it's fantasy, maybe it's future or ancient history. By seeing someone that represents you, whether they play that character or not, it shows them that they belong in that role and they belong at that table playing that game with you. Second, it allows an opportunity for not just for females, but also for males to identify and experience a different perspective that they might not normally have. This is especially important when female characters don't follow the traditional tropes that have been standard in traditional board gaming. Female characters can be warriors, thieves, magicians, tinkers, mechanics, and just general all-around leaders. They don't always have to be healers or seductresses. They can do a lot of different things. And by having positive female roles in board gaming, both females and males can experience these different perspectives and how they play out in each and every game. And I guess especially for us males when we play board games, sometimes we may miss the fact that Language plays a very big part in how we think, and obviously our thoughts play a very big part in how we act. When you are playing a strong female character as a male, it's a positive experience for everyone at the table, and it's something that should be pretty much standard. So with that said, we're bringing you another top 10 board games with positive female characterizations. All right, so let's get into our top 10. Now, I didn't go with any particular intellectual properties here. So if you have a fantasy or a sci-fi universe or a historical type of epic that you're pretty familiar with, you're not going to find it here. We're talking about original creations. All right, so to start off with our number 10 game, Crossmaster Arena. Crossmaster Arena is a Chibi's miniature game, which you're going to put together a team of warriors to knock out the other team of warriors and gain dominance in a little tiny fantasy adventure land. 
Now, what's really interesting here is that there are a lot of roles in particular for females that are not the traditional fantasy roles that you see in a lot of games. So, for example, you have Chrissy Entrich, and she's an engineer here using her inventions to take out the other team. It's a fun, fast game, and there's even a young person's version of this game that people can play. All right, our number nine version is the Red Dragon Inn. Now, obviously, the Red Dragon Inn is all about fantasy tropes, but what's really fun and interesting here is you'll find a lot of strong female characters in non-traditional female character roles, at least in the fantasy universe. So you have captains, you have engineers, you have illusionists. You have a lot of powerful characters here that are trying to outdrink and then knock out their opponents at the bar. Our number eight game is Steamworks. Steamworks is a Euro game set in the steampunk universe in which you're trying to gain glory for Queen Victoria. You're building clockwork machines and using steam and electricity to power them up by utilizing your starting players. What's great about this game is 50% male, 50% female, and they're all drawn as strong characters that represent that Victorian era. Our number seven game is Android Netrunner. This is the LCG that kind of redefined LCGs. Right off the bat, you have a really interesting futuristic world where, where computers are dominating everything and you are fighting against a corporation or in fact, you might be the corporation. What's outstanding as far as female characterization in this game is that so many of the cards and the players here are strong female characters that are representative of this future environment that are not highly sexualized, but show their intelligence and their technical ability. Our number six game is Ashes Rise of the Phoenix Born. Here's another great card and dice game in which you're trying to take out your opponent utilizing your Phoenix Born powers. All of the artwork here is beautiful and tasteful and shows the strength of the women in this game. Not to mention the fact that in the starter set, four out of the six Phoenix Born to be female. It's definitely a fine game of female representation. Number five, Vast, the Crystal Caverns. What's really interesting about Vast is each of the different character roles in this game play radically differently. So you really want to learn each one of them, their strengths and their powers and their special abilities. Now, what we really care about here for this episode is the power and the strength of the knight. Now, traditionally, knights are men. But here, the knight is a fantastic woman who can do great strengths of heroics, trying to take down the dragon and come away with the victory. Our number four is Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition. Now, this reboot for the Mansions of Madness game has really taken everyone by storm. Not only is it a fantastic production with great artwork that shows the strength of female characters, but the app that comes along with it offers a lot of additional gameplay here. You're going to find a really good representation of female characters here and strong female characters here, in particular the athlete, one of the strongest characters in the game, trying to figure out the strange Cthulhu mysteries that are going on. Number three is Gloomhaven. Now, I'm going to tell you from the start, I'm not going to ruin anything for you, but right from the starter set, you're going to have the opportunity to play as a human scoundrel, which is a female character that's shown in the game, an orchid spellweaver, and possibly some other characters. It's a little hard to tell with some of these different races. Now, once you get into the second set of characters that will be available for you later in the game, that's really where this game really does shine. Now, I don't want to ruin anything for people who haven't played that far yet, but there is a lot of wonderful artwork here that depicts the strength and the ability of all of these female characters 
You start as one character and eventually that character will retire and bring out a new character. This is a great game with non-traditional roles and amazing power sets for each and every one of these characters. Our number two game is Scythe. Scythe is a fantastic game for so many reasons that we've already covered, but in particular, when you're looking for strong female characterization, Scythe does a great job. First, the artwork is amazing, and it really depicts that alternate 1920s universe. Now, what you think you would see here is all male characters leading the charge, but in fact, three of the five base characters that come with the game are strong, war-torn characters that can help lead your team to victory. In addition, Invaders from the Far comes with two additional characters, one of which is also a strong female character. And our number one game is One Deck Dungeon. Now, whenever you talk about a dungeon delve, you're thinking about your traditional male stereotype tropes, right? You have the paladin, you have the archer, rogue, mage, and warrior. All these really strong men here. Well, you know what? How about a game that all of the characters here are female? So you have a strong female paladin, and you have a strong female warrior, and you have an intelligent mage in this game that's also female. All the characters here are female. Why would that be so strange? We have games where all the characters are male, so why not have a, a game where all the characters are female? What a fantastic idea, and hopefully something we'll see in more games to come. All right, so that's the top 10 board games with positive female characterization. So next time that you're out looking to pick up the next great board game, why don't you try out one of these great games? They have all the positive female roles that will bring everyone to the table. So that's everything for this week. Until next time, this is Chris. And this is Anthony. And we'll save you a seat at the table. <laughs>